welcome to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive issues in the history of popular music. In today's episode, we explore various anti-capitalist hip-hop acts in the 90s and 2000s. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. hate on capitalism. After all, isn't capitalism just letting free markets operate? And isn't a free market at its heart just people coming together to exchange things they have for the things they want? So I have my time and I exchange that for pay. I devote some of my time to work for you. You pay me. And then I, I, can, I get money so I can spend other parts of my time enjoying myself with the things I buy with that money. It sounds not so bad, right? And besides, haven't things gotten better? Aren't we living in an age where even people living in the projects have more access to material goods than ever before? Isn't it somewhat typical now to see children living in in, in somewhat impoverished conditions, holding smartphones and perhaps wearing designer sneakers? Not to mention more people than ever before live in homes with air conditioners and washing machines, or at least have ready access to washing machines. Isn't that progress? Isn't that the success story of capitalism? Life expectancy on the whole has risen over the course of the last several decades. The standard of living has risen in China is one example of many as that country has increasingly embraced the free market. With the increase in technological automation, are we able to produce more than ever? And remember that even Marx celebrated production as the great innovation and desire of humanity. We are human in part because of the way we produce and produce more than we need so that our desires, in essence, become new needs. We live as producers and that is part of making our lives richer, no? And yet, we've already tipped our hand a bit here, haven't we? That automation hasn't led to the elimination of low-paying, grueling factory work, but it, along with the predatory nature of global capitalism, has shifted those jobs and those factories to third-world countries. This is, of course, just deepening the climate crisis in, in that those third world countries and those countries that have only recently moved away from third world status, those are the areas most deeply impacted by climate change. Those are the areas most deeply devastated by extreme weather conditions. Those are the areas where people are displaced by the shift in weather patterns as storms become ever more deadly and tornadoes and hurricanes increase the range of their destruction. The people at the bottom of the economic chain live in a state of constant precarity. The laborers live lives of quiet and not-so-quiet desperation, doing tedious work. I don't know, maybe the great majority of workers find their working lives rather tedious, their time diminished from quality to quantity, the seemingly objective ticking away of the clock that measures one's working time. And yet, that quantification of time is seeping into the way we see all time. There's less free time now because that time is bought and sold. Or rather, it becomes a time during which we are sold things. So we buy more deeply into the market. We're invested, literally. Those Marxist desires that become needs come back to haunt us. We become slaves to the market, not just as workers, but also and more insidiously as consumers. The market owns us because our desires have become needs. 
Those children in the projects are no less food insecure simply because they have smartphones in their hands. Perhaps the insistence on these new needs does little more than add to the food insecurity. Let's imagine we can reduce our current economic social situation to three basic variables. Right? Uh, we, we can always complicate this story later. There are vari- the variables are the government, the capitalists, and the workers. The capitalists own the means of production. They have the money. The workers have time and labor. They work for the money to produce goods and services to make the economy and society run. The government, well, it oversees the situation, providing protections, at least nominally, for both the capitalists and the workers, vouchsafing private property, the cornerstone after all of capitalism, uh, ensuring there are basic provisions for workers and citizens, providing some guarantee against abuses and harassment. Okay, so we might imagine then three ways in which the market could work. We could imagine a statist market. The government controls the means of production and allocates resources to various firms or businesses for the good of the people. This might be a kind of non-capitalist market in which there are no longer capitalists, but the market remains. Or it might just be a state-sanctioned and protective form of capitalism, where the government simply bails out those corporations or banks that are deemed too big to fail. Sound familiar? Secondly, we might imagine a situation in which the workers control the means of production through cooperatives. There are still workers, but not precisely employees. There is still a market, but not exactly capitalists. Finally, we might imagine a straightforward capitalism in which the wealthy own the means of production and therefore hold power over the economy. But then we have to wonder, as we saw in the last episode, uh, if the economy is absorbing more and more the elements of the institutions of society, family and government and so on, where does that leave government or family for that matter? If the capitalists are too big to fail, can the same be said for our political institutions? Or do they become mere puppets of the wealthy and thus they've already failed? What kind of balance do we want among government, workers, and capitalists? Let's assume we're unsatisfied with the abuses of capitalism and not yet ready to just throw our hands up in the air and proclaim, oh well, that's just the way it is, nothing to do about it. Let's assume we still have hope of making our lives better. We kind of have to, right? I mean, isn't hope a pretty vital part of human experience? So if capitalism as it now stands includes moral and ethical problems that we find difficult to tolerate, How do we fix it? One problem for most of us uh, derives from the fact that our feelings about capitalism boil down to those two conflicting narratives. The one says, yeah, capitalism has a lot of victims. The other says, yes, that's rather sad, but the alternatives are worse, and capitalism generally is making things better for most people. Many of us find ourselves in an ambiguous and conflicted position. We aren't super wealthy, And we aren't in a state of precarity either. We don't directly suffer from the depredations of capitalism in an obviously apparent manner. And that presents a problem for Marxism, right? Because appealing to our own vested interests winds up not working out that well. And that was the basic Marxist strategy. You show people that they are directly harmed by capitalism. And of course, they're going to want it changed. You don't need to make moral arguments. You just show them that they're harmed. Now, This is what the anti-capitalist rappers often address. Not direct harm, although they sometimes address that as well, but values. Usually seemingly straightforward values. Suffering is wrong. Causing suffering, well, that's worse. The complexity arises from showing how suffering comes to be and just what is meant by causing suffering. 
Am I only causing suffering if I'm the one actively preventing the homeless man from eating? Can I just blame his suffering on his life choices and circumstances or more nebulous notions of society? The point then becomes to demonstrate that I participate or may participate in the causal chain that leads that man to feel hunger, to be deprived, to suffer. A huge part of the response to capitalism among those supporting it, those excoriating it, and those looking to fix it without necessarily getting rid of it, the, the responses revolve around three basic sets of values, freedom, equity, and community. After all, if the argument from direct harm breaks down because most of us are doing okay under capitalism, then we need to consider arguments from value. And those three, freedom, equity, community, they get brought up a lot. What differs is how various people define those values. The value of the values, in essence. The pro-capitalist will often say that capitalism left to its own devices, that is, with minimal government interference, maximizes the freedom of the individual, treats everyone as equal on the market, and fosters a sense of community based on economic interaction and thus social interdependency. The pro-capitalist often stresses that equity ought to be about equality of opportunity, not equality of outcomes. Meaning, we all have a chance of success if we work hard, and those who don't succeed, well, they can only really blame themselves. The person that feels capitalism needs fixing, but maybe not eradicating, might suggest that there are other kinds of freedoms that need to be addressed, not just individual freedom, as a freedom from governmental control, for example, but various kinds of freedoms for or to. Freedom to live a life of dignity outside of the economic sphere. Freedom to pursue self-actualization that falls outside of economic markers of success. They might suggest that equality of opportunity is not currently being offered at all. That some start off in a far more secure position than others. And some start off with huge disadvantages that can hardly be considered their fault. This person might also suggest that we too often emphasize individuality over community and that this sense of hyper-competition, looking out for number one, might ultimately be self-defeating. The anti-capitalist would likely argue that under capitalism, we aren't truly free. Not even capitalists are free. We're bound to the logic of capitalism and we all suffer for it. This suffering will only end with the destabilization and ultimately the eradication of capitalism. The anti-capitalists would likely maintain that there is no equity in a society that still contains homelessness, food insecurity, discrimination, and all the other social ills we rail against but ultimately don't eliminate. The anti-capitalists would stress community over the individual, that there is a power that emerges in looking out for each other. We become stronger in our concern for others, not weaker. And that sense of community will never be fostered by an economic system that privileges the amassing of individual wealth and property. Indeed, as we will see, all of the rappers we discuss today are community organizers. For all their differences, the artists will now examine, share a basic assumption. If you want change, you need people alongside you. And more to the point, positive change arises primarily from groups of people making their lives mutually better by focusing on that mutuality.
In this segment, we're going to focus on two hip-hop groups, The Coup and Dead Prez, both of which got their start in the 90s, uh, and then, of course, Dead Prez reaches some sort of critical attention in the early 2000s. The Coup, of course, features Boots Riley as their, their main MC. This is a rap group from Oakland. Uh, their first appearance on the on the scene was in 1991 with an EP just simply titled The EP. That was soon followed, well, a few years later, two years later in 1993, by their debut album Kill My Landlord, and then Genocide and Juice in 94. Then they took a hiatus for four years while they worked as community activists, putting their uh, ideas into practice through di direct action and coaching others in direct action. They reappeared with the album Steal This Album in 1998. The title's obviously riffing on the 1960s book by Abby Hoffman, Steal This Book. The coup were celebrated, partly for their videos. Indeed, relatively recently, Boots Riley has written and directed a film that offers a surrealistic take on the foibles and pitfalls of capitalism called Sorry to Bother You, released in 2018 and starring Lakeith Lee Stanfield and Tessa Thompson. It can now be found on Netflix, at least at the time of this recording, if you're curious. Let's look at the song from the second album, from Genocide and Juice, called Fat Cats and Bigger Fish, or just Fat Cats, Bigger Fish. Uh, this provides a classic example of their approach to a critique of capitalism. The beat builds on a sample from George and Gwen McRae's song, The Rub, from 1975, the song's already a fine blend of funk and disco elements, the funk groove in the bass and staccato strings and the lush, uh, sustained string line that runs against that foundation. Uh, it sounds as though The Coup, one of the first hip-hop groups to use live instruments in combination with samples, may have added a guitar part, at least I'm pretty sure that's what's happening there, and almost certainly added that incredibly funky and arresting descending piano run that punctuates the loop. And for me, that's one of the things that really grabs your attention, drives the whole thing forward. This is combined with the get down, get down, get down vocal from Millie Jackson's 1977, All the Way Lover. It's an irresistible groove that perfectly prepares Boots Riley's uh, characteristically windy narrative. The song begins by establishing the narrator's hustle. He picks pockets and engages in petty th theft to get by. He stole his bus pass, even. He flirts with a cashier to get free burgers and fries. His motto is, quote, I use peoples before they use me, end quote. The streets are fraught with dangers. The narrator tries to avoid the drug game and other seemingly more lucrative endeavors to avoid the pitfalls inherent in them. He's streetwise, but he's not really dangerous. He's also intelligent. He's offered an opportunity to pickpocket wealthy owners of corporations like IBM and Chrysler by acting as a waiter at a high-class party. But while he's in there, he overhears a man that owns the Coca-Cola bottling plants. And this man's describing how he filters funds through election campaigns, then plans to make condos out of what had been low-rent housing for the poor. But he's going to sidestep possible uh, protests against that move. He's going to use the media and the police to portray the current occupants of these projects as drunkards and criminals, thus winning over public approval for their displacement laying the blame of the suffering of the poor at the feet of the poor. The song ends with the narrator musing on the vast gap between his petty grifts and the schemes of those that are really in charge. Quote, Ain't no one player that could beat this lunacy. Ain't no hustler on the street could do a whole community. End quote. 
The coup, Putz Riley, they're given to analysis of the various levels of capitalism and, and perhaps come close to the strain theory analysis of capitalism that we discussed in the previous episode. But notice that in Fat Cats, the strain theory-like analysis doesn't simply focus on the crimes of the lower class, but examines how the same crass devotion to the American dream drives corporate crime and the kinds of depravities that focus not on solitary victims, but rather could, quote, do a whole community, end quote. In other songs, Boots calls into question the efficacy of voting, the need for direct action, or uh, proselytizes for the need for direct action, and he highlights the fact that the 1%, well, it's only 1%. The masses are the ones being taken advantage of. They're the masses. The problem is that they don't realize the problem of their, or the, the promise and the power of their numbers. In the song The Guillotine, he raps, quote, They got the TV. We got the truth. They own the judges. And we got the proof. We got hella people. They got helicopters. They got the bombs. And we got the, the guillotine. Now, that is, the masses have the force of the majority. What they lack is the force of will. Dead Prez presents a different approach to analysis of capitalism. This is M1 and Stickman. Uh, they're the two primary MCs in that group. They met in Florida while at the Agricultural Mechanical University of Florida. M1 moved to Chicago to be part of the International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement. Uhuru movement. Uh, he, they signed to Loud Records. Uh, by and they were discovered more or less by Lord Jamar of the Brand Nubians, and he's the person that recommended them to Loud Records. When Loud Records uh, folded, they found themselves on their own again, and they produced their own albums, uh, mixtapes ultimately, in which they sold on the street. And so there's an element here of them taking control of the means of production, right? Distributing their own material. It gets distributed perhaps less widely, but they have greater control. But let's talk about their early material. Their first album, uh, first full album, Let's Get Free of 2000, includes their most celebrated song, Hip Hop, uh, or sometimes uh, called It's Bigger Than Hip Hop. The refrain is It's Bigger Than Hip Hop. And so the, the song gets published by both titles. This, has the, this, this is the song that's perhaps the most famous representative of their characteristic self-ironizing move uh, that they make over and over again. Uh, they, uh, the track, which is produced by Kanye West, is a twisty, meandering bass line that borders on the nonsensical. And over that, Stickman and M1 rap about the relative unimportance of rappers and rap, that the real problems that rappers must address are bigger than hip-hop. And we'll see this move over and over again with Dead Prez, that, that they'll emphasize the importance of doing things and that rap is a way of calling attention to problems, but it doesn't really fix matters. The album itself, Let's Get Free, uh, features several excerpted speeches by Chairman Omali Yeshitela, the leader of the International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement. Uh, Yeshitela is also the head of the African People's Socialist Party and the founder of the newspaper The Burning Spear the party's official journal, which began publication in 1968. He created the po uh, political theory known as African internationalism. They characterized the, uh, the African People's Socialist Party, the, the party itself uh, characterizes itself on its website as, quote, an integral part 
of the international struggle to overthrow capitalist imperialism and its neocolonial minions in order to achieve the unification and liberation of Africa and African people under the leadership of the African working class and build a society which will, as declared by Kwame Nkrumah, who was, of course, the leader of, of uh, Ghana in the, in the 50s for several, several years, uh, quote, advance the triumph of the internationalist socialist revolution and onward progress toward world communism under which every society is ordered on the principle of from each according to ability to each according to needs, end quote, and end quote within quote. The album addresses the idea of being African rather than African-American, for example, in the song I Am an Afri- I'm an African. Uh, they talk about the school-to-prison pipeline, and they're quite early on in that conversation, right? This happens in the song Behind Enemy Lines. They discuss organizing for freedom in the song We Want Freedom. That last song lands on some familiar themes and points of view prevalent on the album. Stickman predicts a scenario in which martial law is declared against the poor, leading to violent upheaval and civil war. He claims he has cousins in the military, and thus his own family would be among those attempting to kill him and those that stand with him. In a very real sense, he feels his cousins already stand on the side of the oppressor, and thus he raps, quote, But as far as I'm concerned, they died when they registered, end quote. M1's first verse deflates the importance of MCs, once again, just like we saw in It's Bigger Than Hip Hop, and claims that the world needs more Hueys, referencing, of course, Huey Newton uh, of the Black Panthers. As is typical in Dead Press songs, M1, too, raises the specter of the possibility of violent rebellion. He, he raps, quote, fuck the gold and the party, train yourself, clean your shoddy, end quote. Of all the artists I discussed in this episode, Deb Prez is seemingly the most comfortable with declaring the need for all-out revolution and the violent re- overthrow of the capitalist system. A system that, following the logic of Chairman Omali Eshetela, necessitates slavery. First, the overt abomination of the Atlantic slave trade, and then the demoralizing, dispiriting oppression of wage slavery, the school-to-prison pipeline, and the systemic abuses of governmental power, which they see as largely falling on black people. They seem to maintain that any system that could not only countenance but rely upon slavery and the continuing oppression of a race is not a system that can be fixed. It must be eradicated. In the meantime, they suggest preparation taking a militant stand in the name of freedom. They also recommend outright resistance prior to rebellion. In short, if capitalism makes you a wage slave, better be better to become a thief, an outlaw. This is best captured in their song Hell Yeah from their 2004 album RPG, Revolutionary But Gangsta. That song justifies stick-up robbery, welfare scams, credit card fraud, and petty theft at one's menial job, not merely as a means to survive but also, and maybe more importantly, is a way to corrupt the system from within. This becomes most obvious in the sung outro to the song that proclaims, quote, If you claim in gangsta, then bang on the system and show that you're ready to ride. Till we get our freedom, we gotta get over. We steady on the grind, end quote. This captures the essence of that album title, Revolutionary But Gangsta, as well as the general stance Dead Prez takes. On the one hand, they rely on the tropes of gangster rap, the dedication and commitment to the thug life, the willingness, perhaps eagerness, to resort to violence, the justification of criminality as a survival technique in a system designed to oppress the poor and particularly the black. But on the other hand, they're critical of the stated goals of most gangster rap. 
as they rap in the song, Be Healthy, they're not interested in becoming rich, but becoming well, which includes seeking and fighting for freedom, freedom for a community, not just an individual. And this is the type of freedom they feel the capitalist system will never provide. Immortal Technique is an American rapper of Amerindian descent. He was born in Peru. He espouses left-wing politics and retains control over his music, just like Dead Prez started doing later in their career. His family came to Harlem to escape the Peruvian Civil War. He was arrested and jailed for assault while studying at Penn State, served a year, and then more or less under the influence of his father, he studied political science at Baruch while engaging in rap battles. And he won several freestyle competitions. In 2001, he released the album Revolutionary, Volume 1, by himself, no record label, using the prize money he won from battles. He appeared in the column Unsigned Hype in the source in 2002, which, of course, is a big honor. And he, uh, that's how Biggie Smalls got his start and so on. These rappers with mixtapes or self-released albums get some attention from, you know, probably the biggest magazine at that time in, in hip-hop, The Source. The song Industrial Revolution from Volume 2, Revolutionary Volume 2, which was released in 2003, that got him even more attention, including an excerpt from the song appearing in Hip Hop Quotable from the source, and many people consider that a huge honor. And here's an unsigned, in fact, I think he was the first unsigned uh, rapper to, to have that honor. He, like a lot of the people we're talking, all of the people that we're talking about today, he engages in actual activism, right? He's not just talking the talk. He mentors youth in prison. He worked with the Omade International Company on the so-called Green Light Project in June of 2008, and they opened an orphanage in Kabul without any corporate support. In part, he was using funds from his third album, Third World, to do this. In 2010, he worked on uh, Haiti's recovery from the earthquake and handed out water and supplies at the Mexican border. He started a charity during the pandemic called The Rebel Army Runs to help elders in need of food and supplies, helping his community in Harlem. In many ways, he takes a similar stance to Deb Prez. He works through the tropes 
of gangster rap, but is severely critical of rappers who simply glorify violence for personal gain. He combines that ironic use of gangster rap with a deep penchant for battle rap and a deep hatred of politicians, especially the second Bush, whom he blames directly for 9-11, the plight of the poor, and the increasing dispossession of people in preference to corporations. And I find Immortal Technique fascinating. There, there are tons of songs that we might discuss. And oddly enough, perhaps, I'm picking one that I find deeply problematic, but it's a very interesting tune um, from early on in his career called Dance with the Devil. And this is a good example of how he combines battle rap, gangster rap, and this critical consciousness all in one. It's a sort of cautionary tale about a hustler, a small-time hustler, selling drugs, robbing a bit, getting by. He winds up being jumped into a gang, into a crew. And as part of that, they abduct a woman and, and rape her and then ultimately kill her. It turns out to be the, the young man's mother, right? So it's this sort of twisted, vicious tale. And the way that it goes into the, the, the kind of level of detail that it gets into is very similar in some ways to gangster rap. But of course, we're supposed to be, I think, appalled by it all. We're supposed to be disgusted by it. Not just the ending, but the whole thing. The way that he describes the, the assault on the woman is, is quite vivid and disgusting. And so the, the reason that I find the song problematic, we're, we're not all the way through it, of course, yet, but there's, there are a number of things. First of all, you can see that it's meant to be a cautionary tale. Uh, throughout the, the um, song, he references the difference between getting picked up on minor offenses and people who are doing real time on cell blocks and ask them, was it worth it, basically, right? Uh, and there's a lot of, of discussion of basic issues in morality and, and, and borrowing from theology, the idea that devils are falling angel, fallen angels and, and things like that. So it's not exactly justification, right? Uh, but he's sort of showing the slippery slope of crime um, and how these decisions, these, these morally, um, at first morally obtuse decisions, and then of course morally uh, disgusting and, and reprehensible decisions, lead to ultimately the dehumanization of the young man. But at the same time, as I said, there's this, there's the gangster rap trope of kind of getting involved in the moment of crime. And so there's always this, this tension, I think, in the song between the excitement of the, uh, the depiction and the vividness of the depiction and the kind of the same kind of thing that you go to see a horror movie for or, or a gangster movie, uh, where there's, there's a lot of, um, egregious, uh, representations of crime. And then, of course, the critical apparatus, the idea that we're supposed to look at this as, as being utterly wrong. So we're engaged by it. We have to be engaged by it in order to, to listen to the song. And it's quite a long song. And at the same time, we have to be repulsed in the moment of our own engagement. Now, what's really interesting is then the song has a second part. When it seems to be over, he comes out in full battle rap mode. Uh, basically dissing other rappers that, that can't hang and so on and saying you, you thought it was over, but it's not. And, it, and you would think that at that point there would be some kind of summation of a kind of moral point of view or an, uh, an ethical maxim that we're supposed to take away from, from this really horrible depiction of a crime. And yet there's not. And that's what kind of makes me wonder about Immortal Technique. As much as I admire him, as much as I enjoy listening to his music – 
that battle rap aspect of things, the, the cocking aspect of things that, that of course is most famously captured in his song Obnoxious, which is just basically pure battle rap, pure braggadocio. It's not really bringing the critical conscience to conscious to bear in any um, strong way. And that, I think, works very well, obviously, as a battle rap song. That's the uh, sort of full badass mode, right? But when he brings in the battle rap elements to his more critical endeavors, there's almost this loss, I think, of the political um, efficacy of the moment. Because after all, part of left-wing revolutionary politics has to be about community, not just about the brazenness of the individual, and so that song, Dance with the Devil, is particularly interesting because, of course, on the one hand, it's about a, a brazen individual criminal who then gets jumped into a group, becomes part of a, uh, uh, an evil community, and then the whole thing gets sort of turned on its head with, again, the brazen individual, this time uh, Immortal Technique himself, coming in to comment basically about how he's a better MC than other people. Another fascinating left-wing rapper is low key he's a british rapper and activist he was born to an iraqi mother and a british father he toured with immortal technique and released a single with him in 2009 called voices of the voiceless great song took a break from music after the release of his second album soundtrack to the struggle from october 2011 but returned with the single ahmed uh in july of 2016 about the refugee crisis and europe's failed response to it He's against Zionism, very openly against Zionism, which he compares to ethnic cleansing. He's pro-Palestine. In 2009, he joined M1 of Dead Prez on a humanitarian aid mission, bringing medical supplies and assistance to the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. The song Long Live Palestine from 2010 uh, accuses Israel of terrorism, openly, of bombing hospitals and mosques and lays blame also at the feet of Obama, Coca-Cola, and Huggies, right? big corporations. One of his most powerful songs, in my opinion, is Neoliberalism Kills People, which is about the Grenfell Towers fire. Um, the Grenfell Towers was, of course, that, that fire took place in 2017. This was a high-rise tower in North Kensington area of, of London, a relatively wealthy area. Um, but this was, of course, a, a relatively low rent high-rise, so mostly people of, of lower middle class income. And it was a very poorly maintained building uh, with, with the knowledge of the people that ran the building. They, they knew that it was a fire hazard. Uh, they fixed it up more on the outside of the building than the inside. And so it became a death trap and many, many people lost their lives in this fire. And so um, the writer Naomi Klein gave a speech not long after it uh, when she was was uh, supporting one of her books on on Trump and the sort of mire of, of neoliberalism, um, which, of course, is one of her major themes. And she said that the Grenfell Towers and, and neoliberalism in general is what lovelessness looks like in public policy, that the Grenfell Towers are a story of indifference, and Loki quotes this at the beginning of, of his tune, uh, Neoliberalism Kills People. He quotes the speech by Naomi Klein. And then he goes into his first verse. And he references a, a freestyle that he had released uh, several years before this, uh, Fire in the Booth. And he was doing a sequel to it not right around the time of the Grenfell 
fire. Uh, so the very first verse begins, how can I do a fire in the booth when I'm just trying to maintain and since June don't hear the word fire in the same way? And so you can see there's this kind of self-examination uh, that runs through a lot of Loki's work. He's, of all the rappers that we're discussing, he's probably the most comfortable with the idea of, of some kind of political correctness, right? His raps are deeply self-critical and heavy on analysis of the implications of speech acts, especially his own. And so this idea of, of can you really use the word fire? In a, because fire in the booth, of course, was, was uh, a bit of braggadocio, that he's so good in the recording booth that he's on fire. And now he's questioning the very use of the word fire. Right. Uh, and it goes on heard screams, splutters and them gasping for air. That's not bars in a booth. It's hard to compare. If I use fire as a metaphor, does that disrespect the people that are never more? Right. So this idea of, of even our casual use of language has to be critically examined for someone like like low key. And, you know, Loki's fascinating because most, not all, but many of his songs are kind of mini history lesson in, in various ways, right? Uh, and while he, like any MC or like most MCs, has an element of, of braggadocio, an element of hyping his own importance as an MC, he does it through this very philosophical lens. One of the lines, of course, um, in, in this song, in Neoliberalism Kills People, is, but I know I'm ridiculed for making invisibles visible. That's why Plato said, banish poets from the Republic, because they know that we can shake the social system and disrupt it. Now, in one sense, that's a lot of weight to put on rap, right? The idea that, that not only can it point towards social ills, but it can disrupt the social system. And I'm not sure I buy it. But it doesn't matter what I buy. What matters is that Loki is, is making the attempt and, you know, also doing the work of trying to persuade people that that kind of change can happen, that, that calling out those um, depravities of capitalism in an aesthetic way is just as important, I'm assuming, for Loki as calling them out through political rhetoric. The last figure I'd like to look at briefly is Bamboo. He's a Filipino-American community activist and rapper from L.A. Participated in street gangs, got arrested, put in juvie. Then he joined the armed services, the U.S. Marine Corps, as a special operations training instructor. He talks about his times in the gangs as a, as a way to deal with disempowerment experienced by immigrant groups and the dispossessed. And he says something similar about... Um, about the Marine Corps, that in both cases, what he was looking for was direction and a sense of belonging, a sense of community, right? So you can see, in one sense, there's a kind of tripartite trajectory to his, his career as he illustrates it, as he discusses it, right? That he began with the street gangs, looking for a sense of community and belonging on the street. Then he goes to the U.S. military, looking for a sense of community and belonging on the national level. And then he comes back and he becomes a community organizer, looking for a, not only looking for a sense of community, but trying to foster it. Uh, he says, quote, when there's a street gang that stands up for themselves, that is under the guise of protecting our community. Young, black, and brown youth organized in this way, that's appealing. That feeds the teenage angst where you really have no outlet. My music is here to push people to organize, period. Right? So you can see that... that you could see this as a, going in a couple different directions. You could see it as a glorification of the gang life. That is a justification, a sort of... Um, 
self-empowering justification of, of, of participating in a gang. But on the other hand, you can see it as a kind of coming into more refined consciousness. That what people are looking for ultimately in their heart of hearts is a sense of belonging. And that capitalism, to some extent, deprives us of that by, by uh, focusing so much on the individualistic elements of existence that we forget that a, a huge, or we're, we're told to forget, we're encouraged to forget that a huge part of our existence is reaching out to and communicating with others. Bamboo, of all of the people that we're talking about, other than maybe Loki, is very conscious of the Marxist theory that he's building on. And, and to some extent, the Maoist theory. He has a song called Chairman Mao. Uh, he, he also is very inventive in the use of beats. Um, and his, his sort of persona that, that he puts across in a lot of his songs. One of my favorites is a song called Rent Money that I think uh, demonstrates all of these aspects rather well. On the one hand, you have this horn, brass-driven beat that almost sounds out of place in hip-hop. You have, of course, the hip-hop drums, but the, the brass itself uh, it sounds like a, a marching band or something, right? A sort of very refined marching band, but nevertheless. And there's something that's clearly meant to connote the political, but at the same time, the bombastic and the there's an element of genuine fun to it, right? And the way that he raps brings a lot of that kind of mixture of devotion and affability. He comes across as a relatively uh, friendly figure, someone that you can relate to, even though he engages in the same kind of discourse of, of Bregadocio and so on as a lot of MCs, right? Even the song Rent Money, uh, notice the way that it positions uh, our use of, of funds, of, of money. The refrain includes the lines, uh, get money, rent money, get money, food money, get money, school money, stop taking shit from me, right? And this is, in one sense, a song that can be taken in, in a, a number of ways, I think, right? We talked at the very beginning of this episode about the three basic parameters of a market situation, the government, uh, the capitalists and the community, the, the workers, right? The community of workers. And throughout what we've been discussing today, we've seen people focus mostly on that latter, on the community of workers, on, on uh, the, the rebellion of the people. Think of, for instance, the coup's song, Guillotine, right? For de uh, Dead Prez, of course, it's the community of black workers, by and large, but still the sense of, of community. And of course, there's a lot of discussion of the depredations of the capitalists and of the government. But here, Bamboo's at least leaving in a space open for the possibility of the improvement of government, of government uh, helping people do the things that they need to do to live a reasonable and dignified life. And then that comes from uh, the access to rent money, food money, school money, right? Without necessarily uh, robbing from the people that you're supposed to be serving. And this brings up an, an interesting point, I think. We talked at the opening about the difference between the equality of opportunity and the equality of outcomes. And that's a, a favorite uh, gambit by Republicans, right? That you shouldn't have to, and, and, and it would be wrong to guarantee uh, equality of outcomes. But there's another possibility that Bamboo seems to be harnessing or, or, or focusing on, right? 
which is equality of access. Maybe it's not. Equality of opportunity in this country as it stands now is clearly not happening. And figuring out how to adjust in order to make it happen, that's a pretty tall order. But maybe what we should be concerned with isn't equality of outcomes or equality of opportunity in a simple sense, but rather equality of access, that you have access to the things you need. You have access to the things that will help you live a proper life. And some of that is money, rent money, school money, lunch money, food money, right? But it's also a lot more. What should we have access to? I mean, it's ours, right? We're a, we're a community of people. The things that we have here in, in this nation, in this world, they're ours. Why should some people have more access to those things than others? Why should some people have more access to clean water, clean air, a healthy life? Wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be better for all of us if we all had equal access? 